name is Volker Kruger and I welcome you to Confirmandafi Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. Today we will firstly be talking about the exclusion of beneficiaries from a family trust and then uh, secondly I will be talking to Johannes Mukotidi about the dismissal or the, uh, yeah, the dismissal of an employee without a formal inquiry. And I think he'll uh, give us some valuable uh, tips and advice in that regard. You're listening to Van Ferndafi Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. I received a question uh, pertaining to family trust and specifically whether one can exclude beneficiaries from benefiting from the trust. Obviously, it's a case where the relevant person doesn't want that beneficiary or beneficiaries to benefit from the trust any longer. They want to exclude that specific person. And the question is whether that is possible to do from a legal uh, point of view. Now, my opinion, there are two strategies that such a person could follow to exclude such a beneficiary. Firstly, in the case of a discretionary family trust, the person could simply decide, or the trustees could simply decide, to exclude such a beneficiary. Now, let me maybe just explain a bit more about the legal position in respect of trusts and uh, the two types of trusts that we work with here in South Africa. One is a discretionary trust, and the other one is a vesting trust. Discretionary trust in Afrikaans in a bewind trust. That's the only in Afrikaans. In the case of a bewind trust or a vesting trust, the relevant beneficiaries have vested rights in respect of the trust assets. That means that they are, in terms of the trust deed of the trust, entitled to receive a certain portion of the income or the capital of the trust. If, for example, there are five beneficiaries who hold those vested interests in equal shares, then each one of them would be entitled to 20% of the income and the capital of the trust. Now, in the case of a discretionary trust, however, the um, beneficiaries hold no vested interests. That means that the trustees can, from time to time, uh, decide whether the beneficiaries should benefit and to what extent. Now, based on my experience, and I work with trusts quite regularly, I would say that about 95% of trusts in South Africa are indeed discretionary trusts. Now, I would uh, therefore assume that in this case, we are also dealing with a discretionary trust. In other words, the trustees can decide which beneficiaries most should uh, benefit and to what extent. Now, if the right persons are indeed the trustees of the relevant trust, then those trustees can simply decide to exclude that beneficiary from getting any benefit from the trust as such. Now, that strategy should work as long as those trustees are indeed 
um, the trustees of the trust. So to ensure that this will also be a strategy that can be followed successfully in the future, one would also have to make sure that the appropriate trustees replace, or the appropriate persons replace the existing trustees as trustees as soon as they, for example, um, pass away or become or are no longer uh, capable for other reasons to act as trustees of the trust. Now, um, in this regard, I think it's rather important to keep in mind that the trustee would normally cater for the appointment of trustees, and a trustee would also typically cater for the founder of the trust and sometimes also other trustees having the right to nominate a trustee in their place or trustees in their place um, upon them passing away. So one thing that should certainly be looked at together with this whole issue is the amendment of such a person's will to make sure that it does indeed cater for replacing trustees. So um, if that strategy is followed, that would be one of the options to cater for such a beneficiary not to receive any benefit from the trust. Now, I should add that I'm making these comments based on the assumption that it is, as I mentioned before, a discretionary trust, and furthermore, that there are no specific clauses in the trust deed that prevent us from following this strategy. So uh, certainly any uh, person should obtain proper legal advice and make sure that an attorney, for example, produces the trust deed to make sure that this strategy is not contrary to what is stipulated in the trust deed. So that was the first possible strategy that could be followed. The second possible strategy relates to the amendment of the trust deed of the trust. Now, I don't want to get too technical in this regard, but I do think it's rather important maybe to give you a bit more background of the history of the South African law in respect of trusts. Now, as our listeners who are legal experts would know, our South African common law is based on the Roman Dutch law. Now, our common law is not codified. In other words, it's not uh, put in writing by any uh, act of parliament as such. Furthermore, it's also important to understand that our common law um, has developed and is applicable uh, where there's no specific legislation that caters for the relevant legal uh, question. Now, the source of our common law is um, what we can find in books of uh, Roman Dutch uh, writers, such as, for example, Foot. And then also it's important to understand that these principles were furthermore developed in legal cases where 
our common law was applied. And in certain cases, also our common law was not only developed, but also changed to an extent. Now, one very important development in our common law is that our trust law in South Africa was to a large extent taken over from the English law because the Roman Dutch law actually did not cater for a trust. Now, to sync our trust law with the Roman Dutch law, certain principles related to the law of contract were used in the Roman Dutch law to apply to our trust law. Now, one example of this is a so-called contract concluded for the benefit of a third party. This was called a stipulatio alteri in Roman Dutch law, a beding tembuwe van de derde in Afrikaans. Now, this is a contract concluded between two or more parties for the benefit of a third party or third parties. Now, the third party or parties would typically not be part of the initial contract. However, as soon as the third party or parties accepts the benefit, such a third party or parties would become part of the contract. In other words, they would be a contractual party to the relevant agreement. Now, a trust is also a contract for the benefit of a third party. In other words, a stipulatio alteri. In other words, it's an agreement concluded between the founder of the trust and the trustees in order to benefit a third party or third parties, namely the relevant beneficiary or beneficiaries of the trust. Now, sorry for this long explanation, but this brings us to the important principle that is relevant to enable me to answer the uh, question that we received. As soon as a beneficiary, in other words, accepts a benefit from a trust, that beneficiary becomes a contractual party to the trust agreement. Now, the consequence of this is that such a beneficiary who has accepted such a benefit will then also have to consent to an amendment of the trust deed. So to cut a long, long story short, uh, any beneficiary who has already received a benefit from a trust would also have to consent to the uh, amendment. So obviously, if the relevant beneficiary that one wants to exclude has already accepted an, a benefit or a benefit rather from the trust, then obviously such a beneficiary will not consent to the amendment. He will probably uh, refuse to sign any relevant document. However, if such a beneficiary has not yet received any benefit uh, from the trust, then the principle doesn't apply. And as a general rule, a trust deed can be amended without the consent of such a, a beneficiary. 
I uh, mentioned probably be amended because in any event, one would also have to have a look at the relevant clauses in the trust deed, specifically the clause dealing with an amendment of the trust deed, which one would normally find at the end of the document. Such a clause would typically uh, cater for requirements that have to be met before a trust deed can be amended. Uh, typically, there would, uh, or the, such a clause would stipulate that the founder of the trust, together with the trustees, could amend the trust deed as long as the founder is still alive. And after the founder has passed away, then the trustees, together with the trust, uh, the, with the beneficiaries, can amend um, the trust deed. So it also depends on what the trust deed in this regard stipulates. So I hope that gives our listeners an idea of to what extent and in which cases it would be possible to exclude a certain beneficiary from benefiting from a trust that uh, already exists. So I think um, our advice should make it clear that it's very important to rather get proper advice before you register a trust. The trust deed is not a standard document which you can apply to all situations. The proper nomination of trustees should be uh, dealt with, also the replacing of trustees as such, and of course the nomination of beneficiaries of the trust should be clearly and appropriately stipulated in the trust deed and also their disqualification. For example, you could stipulate that a certain beneficiary will no longer qualify as a beneficiary after a divorce to cater for that possible um, scenario. And then finally, it is also very important to make sure that the relevant amendment clause in the trust deed is uh, appropriately drafted depending on the wishes of the founder of the trust. Our regular listeners will already know Johannes Mokoteri, our labor law expert, who I again asked to join us today to discuss a court case which uh, deals with a worker that was fired without a formal inquiry. Um, Johannes, uh, this is an interesting set of facts. Yeah, very, very, very interesting in a sense that uh, 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 I think the decision arrived at by the bargaining council was uh, uh, very, maybe it's groundbreaking in a sense that um, uh, we have never heard about it before and uh, 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 it tends to be challenged. But what happened was that the, I am of the view that the circumstance under which the bargaining council came to that decision is understandable. We must remember that, um, uh, especially dealing with the uh, question of labor law, it's all primarily about fairness. It's all primarily about being logical. It's all primarily about making sure that uh, the parties understand each other's situation and parties are bound to respond to whatever that the allegations are. But more than any other thing, I'm of the view that uh, looking at the facts of the matter, uh, it was fair, and the, the, the decision by the bargaining by the arbitrator, it's fair, and I support the, the decision. 
So what happened? What were the facts? Okay. What happened is that um, uh, uh, one of the employees of DreamWorks bidding PTYLTD engaged in a number of um, uh, unlawful incidents. Um, he incited violence at uh, the workplace. He bullied colleagues. He abused female employees. He threatened the, uh, the lives of the other employees and makes explicit death threats against the employees who were foreigners. And uh, the list goes on. Now, uh, after doing that, um, uh, the employer called a meeting. The purpose of the meeting was to actually address the the, the, the complaints by the employees and make sure that they have a safe working environment. Now, in the meeting, these allegations were leveled against uh, this person, who is Mr. Javulani, and um, uh, he never said anything. Now, uh, there was also a second meeting conducted. And in the second meeting, the same uh, uh, allegations were, repeat, were, were repeated. And uh, the employer, amongst others, made the remarks that um, uh, uh, that the work environment was not uh, safe, and legally he was bound to make it safe for the employees, and 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 um, uh, at that uh, at that second meeting, except uh, uh, for just merely denying the allegations against him, the employee, Mr. Javulani, did not uh, 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 respond to the allegations. Now, uh, after that meeting, the employer decided to summarily dismiss Mr. Javulani for those incidents, and Mr. Javulani took the matter to the uh, uh, Furniture Bargaining Council, and uh, uh, the Furniture Bargaining Council had to make a decision whether the dismissal was substantively, meaning that were there grounds or reasons for him to be dismissed, and uh, such grounds being they must be fair. And the second one was that uh, was the proce process followed, and then such process was fair, and uh, ultimately making it a decision whether fair and or not. And uh, the, arbit the arbitrator, the commissioner at the bargaining council, confirmed and said that the decision was fair, confirmed and said that the process followed by the, empl the, the employer was fair, and as such, everything was fair, and he confirmed the dismissal. Therefore, it's groundbreaking in a sense that, number one, it says that um, the, em the employer can dismiss an employee without holding a formal hearing. Okay. But I guess these were also a fairly special uh, set of facts. Am I right in saying that? So, so obviously, it will always depend on the circumstances. And, uh, uh, yeah, I guess in some other cases, um, another procedure would uh, be expected from an employer um, or, or not. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that the facts were, they were, they were, they were exceptional. Uh, it, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, a, a practical point of an advice would be that it will depend on circumstances under which you are faced with for you to make a decision. Remember that sometimes, like in this instance, the, 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 the employer was duty-bound to act forthwith, to act quickly, and to make sure that the employees feel comfortable to come at the workplace. I had, the, I had a scenario which I want to share with you, which I think almost is more or less of the same scenario as this facts before us. 
uh, in this instance, a mine contractor uh, working for a certain big mine company, one of his employees, uh, immediately after the introduction of the COVID regulations, called a meeting. And in that meeting, uh, uh, he was not happy about the fact that they were paid uh, minimal as compared to what they are normally paid. And he complained about the working conditions, the tests that they had to do, and, and. and all of those incidents, they were contrary to the COVID regulations. Number one, that they didn't comply with the provisions of social distancing. Number two was that they held a meeting. Number Therefore, all of those incidents amounted to contraventions of the, uh, the, the COVID regulations. Now, uh, the mine came to hear about this. Now, they confronted my client and said to my client that we need that you must act quickly and uh, this employee of yours is not further on allowed in our workplace. And all of those employees who were involved in such a meeting, they must go, they must be tested, they must be quarantined and end. But bigger than this, my client was faced with a situation of his contract to be, to be terminated by the mines. Now, what was he supposed to do? And in this instance, looking at the situations, my client summarily dismissed um, that employee who called the meeting, although the matter still before the CCMA, but I am of the view that the circumstance and the situation that you're faced with will warrant that you apply your mind. And applying your mind, amongst others, in certain instances, will be justified in dismissing without holding a hearing. Okay, yeah, I hope that uh, gives our listeners... Uh specifically employers, some uh, good guidelines uh, regarding a uh, uh, couple of uh, special circumstances that might warrant a dismissal without holding a formal inquiry. Yes. In addition to, to that, the, 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 in many instances, I have observed that the employers tend to make uh, the policy to be part of a contract between him and the employee. Now, in this instance, it will be difficult for the employer not to comply with what is stated in the contract. Therefore, in making such a decision, take a look at what the contract says between you and your employee. In addition to that, they at times also introduce policies. And in these policies, they tend to spell out what should happen in case of this instance. Therefore, also look at those policies. And finally, item, item four of the Code of Good Practice provide that the employer should conduct an investigation to determine whether there are grounds for dismissal and or not. Therefore, uh, uh, there's a fine line, you know, uh, actually in, uh, actually in uh, determining whether there should be a hearing or no hearing. But I would advise the employees that in making such a decision, look at what the contract between you and your employer says, look at what your policy says, look at the facts, and ultimately make a decision which will, in circumstance, be fair. Bear in mind that even in, in, in the facts uh, uh, before us, remember there was meeting, and meeting was held on two occasions. And for me, my interpretation of that meeting was that it was a forum in terms of which the employee whom the allegations were made against had an opportunity to respond and to state his case. To an extent, it was a hearing. Then remember, the law doesn't say that the hearing must be formal. It can be informal. And in this instance, to an extent, we can take that to be an informal hearing. And he did not deny the allegations. He did not do anything instead except indicating a bad denial. And in that way, I am of the view that the employer complied with uh, what was expected of him and decision reached looking at the facts 
it's fair. All right. Thank you. Join us. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.